You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 27 and following today. We're looking at the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you stop and think about the crucifixion itself, when I think of the crucifixion, I think that it's both the climax and the lowest point in human history. And what I mean by that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was no doubt the crowning moment of God's redemptive plan and His purpose. And He promised that after sin would enter into the world, that He would provide a Savior. And so this is the moment of God's glory here on earth. On the cross, I want you to understand that Jesus reconciled Himself to all of humanity. Even though they were sinful. He reconciled God to sinful humanity through the work of the cross. And yet, when you stop and you think of acts of violence or acts of wickedness, nothing stands close to what happened to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David Thomas was a 19th century commentator, and he writes this, For thousands of years, wickedness had been growing. It had wrought deeds of impiety and crime that had wrung the ages with agony and often roused the justice of the universe to roll her fiery thunderbolts of retribution through the world. But now it had grown to full maturity. It stands around this cross in such gigantic proportions as had never been seen before. It works an enormity before which the mightiest of its past exploits dwindle into significance and pale into dimness. It crucifies the Lord of life and glory. Back in 2004, there was a film put out on the Passion of Christ. And audiences around the world became familiar with the horror of the death of a cross. What happens to someone who dies on a cross? But I want to tell you here this morning, there's nothing sentimental about a cross. Nothing at all. I know that we wear them as jewelry around our necks, earrings. We look at it in that light. Michael W. Smith wrote a song called The Cross of Gold. That's kind of what we've brought it down to, a little piece of jewelry. But I want to tell you, the earliest Christians would have either been amused or offended had they seen us wearing a cross or had a cross tattooed on our body as a decorative ornament, (laughs) because it was no such thing. You see, the expression of the world's wickedness was seen here in the cross. And it can be seen no clearer than the execution of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to know how perverse people can get, and how wicked and how sick the human heart is, just look at the crucifixion of our Lord. And that's what Matthew is concerned with. 
He's not concerned so much about the the physical aspect of Jesus' death because he doesn't even hardly mention the crucifixion. He just says he was crucified. (laughs) That's it. But he talks about the mocking and he talks about the beating and the spitting and the hair pulling. He talks about the wickedness that we see here in this passage. Unrelenting evil. Jesus clearly stated that this generation, his generation, in Matthew 16, 14, was wicked. He didn't beat around the bush with them. He just told them openly, you're wicked. He said the leaders of Israel were full of wickedness in Matthew twenty two eighteen and Luke eleven thirty nine. Paul in Romans one twenty nine, in reference to unbelieving Christ rejectors, said that they're filled with all wickedness. And we all know what Jeremiah seventeen nine says about the human heart that it's w- wicked and desperately evil. And see, we just see this playing out in the crucifixion of Christ. If you're left to yourself, if you're given over to your own devices, your own desires, you could do more wickedness than you could even imagine. Because that's the condition of our human heart. It always cracks me up when somebody says, oh, you know, he's a good guy, he's got a good heart. (laughs) This verse always pops into my mind, Jeremiah 17, 9. No, he doesn't. you knew what was in the heart of the person sitting next to you, you'd probably move. (laughs) The heart is desperately wicked. And that leads to this suffering that Christ went through. And this isn't uncommon to us. It tells us in Scripture, Isaiah 53, that he was a man of sorrows, that he's going to suffer greatly in his life. We shouldn't be shocked about that. But the suffering that he went through was really even too great for us to even comprehend. You could honestly say that he suffered more than any human being who ever lived. Jesus Christ did. According to Isaiah 53, 4, it says he bore our guilts, our griefs, excuse me, and carried our sorrows. So when you think about Jesus Christ, who was, remember, the spotless Lamb of God, there was nothing wrong with him. He was perfect in every way. In bearing our sin on the cross, Jesus bore the collective grief and sorrow of every person who would ever rise to put their faith or trust in Jesus Christ. He also knew what it meant to be alienated and separated from his father for a time as he bore those sins. I mean, Jesus suffered more than all men put together. You can imagine that. And trust me, throughout history, some people have suffered a lot. But that was the life of Christ. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. Grief was his constant Companion. When you look out throughout the Gospels, you see several occasions where Christ says that 
The Bible says that Christ cried. He wept. We don't see him ever laughing. It doesn't ever tell us that he laughed. How did Christ suffer? Before we get into our text, I just want to put this in your, in your mind. Just quickly, he suffered, first of all, from temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was in all points tempted just like us. He was a human being, yet being fully God, yet without sin, it says. He also, in Hebrews 2.18, says he himself has suffered being tempted. Jesus was constantly assaulted by temptation while he was here on this earth. Even though he never sinned. Secondly, he suffered from self-denial. I mean, Jesus really, when you look at the life of Christ, he refused what we assume to have just in the normal day of everyday life. He deprived himself. Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, talking of Christ, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, it says, and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. I mean, this man was born in a stable, He had no personal possessions. He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst, weariness. And yet, all without the absence of worldly comforts. As we're so accustomed to. He suffered temptation, self-denial, but he also suffered rejection. The Bible says that he was hated. He was hated. He was despised. It it describes it as mocking. He was maligned, rebuked, blasphemed, reproached. And as we've seen in his trial, falsely accused. And all those things come together at a head here at the cross. He suffered from sin. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Although he was sinless, you have to understand, Jesus bore all the sins of all the world on the cross. Paul said that Jesus actually became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He suffered from the weight of sin. And when you stop and think about it, you think of he was man, but he was fully God. He, he had omniscience. He, he understood everything. Full knowledge. And he no doubt suffered in anticipation of his suffering. (laughs) The anticipation of his suffering was probably suffering to this individual we call Christ. He also suffered from Satan. Satan plagued Jesus from the time he was born. Tried to have him eliminated immediately by Herod's decree. Remember that? He continued his assault on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. With three great waves of temptation. An attempt to dissuade him from going to the cross. I mean, Satan threw everything he could at him. Yet Genesis 3.15 says he could only bruise his heel. 
yet that still caused tremendous suffering in the life of Christ. I mean, Satan even went to the extent of using one of his own disciples against him. Remember Peter? Jesus had to turn to Peter and say what? Get thee behind me who? Satan. And finally he was betrayed by Judas as the devil entered him himself. He suffered from Satan. He also suffered from the wrath of God. When Jesus became sin on the cross, the Bible says God poured out on him all of heaven's fury against the sin on earth. And so we come to Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, and it shows us, it gives us a picture of Christ's suffering at the hands of wicked men. That's the the goal here in the Gospel of Matthew. If you were to turn over to the Gospel of John, you would see a different goal. You would hear about the grace and the love of God, how He he gave His Son, and it goes into depth, how He suffered and all that. But here in Matthew, He's he's not focused on the crucifixion as much as He is on the people who did it. The wickedness in their heart. So this week and next, we're just going to look at the first one this morning, but the ignorant, wicked, wicked, four groups of wicked, the ignorant, wicked, the knowing, wicked, the fickle, wicked, and the religious, wicked. Every person who does not come to faith in Christ fits into one of those four categories. They were all present at the cross, and you know what? They're still around today. Well, let's read the text so we can get our hands around it in verses 27 and following. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, it says, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel Let him come down from the cross 
and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Beloved, death by crucifixion was something that you definitely do not want to experience. It was the most horrendous kind of death there is. Frederick Farrar wrote this in The Life of Christ. The death, a death by crucifixion seems to include all the pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, publicity of shame, long count continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they could be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer any relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and the crushed tendons throbbed with insistent anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially of the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while every variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an external, internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the awful unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. See, one thing is clear. When the Romans executed you, it wasn't like modern-day executions. When you see someone who goes to the gas chamber or the electric chair or the chemical, whatever they do, you know, they, 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 they try to make it as easy as possible on that person. As horrible as it may be, they try to calm the person. They get a last meal. They, 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 they have counseling for them. They get them up to the point, and now it's kind of relegated to a simple injection in the veins, and the person passes. With some pain, obviously but nothing compared to what goes on in a crucifixion. See, the authorities did not seek a quick and painless death for these people. They wanted them to suffer, and they were excellent at it. They sought to agonize and torture these people, to humiliate them because they had gone against the government of Rome. The crucifixion of Christ was the climax of redemptive history. And so we see here in our text this this viewpoint from which Matthew is coming. This wickedness that just plays out in the hearts of these people. And we see in verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus. Now remember, back in verse 26, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus. So he's already, I mean, Pieces of flesh are torn out of his back and his side. That's what scourging does. He's already been beaten up several times, spit upon. All this stuff is, is, is happening. And he releases him 
And it says the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And here begins the mockery of the Son of God in verses 27 to 30. The mockery of Jesus. And you see in this text here in verse 27, the governor who is Pilate, you see his guilt. I mean, here was a man who had every opportunity to release him. But because of pressure, the sin of Pilate was basically, he, he sold his soul for popularity. He sold his soul for security in his governorship. Here was, fear, here was fearful if he didn't do what the Jews wanted him to do, there'd be another insurrection, and pretty soon he'd get in trouble from his superiors. He didn't think what was happening to Jesus was right, but you know what? He didn't really care. So he just gave them, he gave them over. He gave in. He gave them over to his soldiers. And it's very important to understand who these soldiers were. What was their identification? These soldiers were Roman soldiers who, for the most part, they weren't Italian. They were probably Syrian. Because the Roman army would incorporate all kinds of different people to serve, not, not Jewish, of course, but other, other nationalities to serve in their army. And one of them was people from Syria because they spoke Aramaic, which was a common language in Israel. So they would recruit people from, who were Syrian to be part of the, the group here of soldiers. The Jews were exempt from serving in the military. They, they wouldn't do that. But it says there that he turned them over. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered a whole battalion. A whole battalion. 600 soldiers. <laughs> That's what that is. Quite a few. And most likely these soldiers weren't from Jerusalem. They were probably brought in over near Caesarea, where Pilate's headquarters was. So they may not have been totally familiar with this man called Jesus. They probably heard about him, but they they probably weren't as familiar as people who sat under his teaching. They definitely weren't familiar with religion or with Jerusalem and the religion there and all that stuff. I mean, they were just there to do a job. They didn't understand much about Jesus. And so what they were doing was... They were, they were just obeying orders out of ignorance. Wicked ignorance. I mean, he was just another prisoner to him, to them. They, they, he didn't really, they didn't really care about who he was or whatever. Even though when they looked at him and they, they realized how he was dealing with the authorities, they probably thought, this guy's a little off. Most people are probably screaming about their innocence and Jesus is never saying anything. He's not fighting them. He's not doing anything. He's just kind of willfully going along with that. That's not what is the custom. Usually people would fight when they were arrested or when they were going to be crucified. They would fight against it. But this man didn't. And it wasn't often that these soldiers got to meet a prisoner who called himself a king. But by the time Jesus even got into their hands... He probably looked pretty pathetic as a human being, being beaten up, his face slapped, no doubt swollen, bruised. 
spittle all over him. His body had been lacerated. He was bleeding profusely. They knew he claimed to be a king from what the people screamed. They also knew that people wanted him dead. So they're just doing their job. And yet, somehow, they couldn't remove themselves from their own wickedness. And they begin to mock him. They begin to treat him almost like a clown, like an idiot in the street. They were cold, they were indifferent, they were ignorant. And they were doing this under Pilate's eye, no doubt. He was there watching. John 19, 4 tells us that when Jesus was brought out to the crowd after the scourging, Pilate says, went forth again. So he must have been there with them, aware of what was happening. And in a way, he probably allowed it to happen because remember, Pilate's goal at this point in time is to get Jesus released. He's trying to prop him up and say, this guy can't be a king. He's not a threat to us. I don't want to just kill somebody. And he tried that before. It didn't work. He had to release the other prisoner. So you have to understand that these soldiers doesn't excuse their wickedness, but it was out of ignorance that they did this. And they begin a game that they play in verses 28 to 30. See, they wouldn't just take somebody and nail them to a cross and plop the cross on the ground and that's it. No, they they enjoyed this. They were trained to do this. So they would take somebody who violated some law, Roman law, and their goal was to ultimately kill them, but in the process, make the process so hideous and so mocking and so ridiculous that anybody watching it would just say, man, I never want that to happen to me. (laughs) I'm not going to go against Rome. So they would play a game with their victims. And Jesus, already bleeding in agony from the scourging, he became the object of ridicule. And when we were over in Israel, we actually, there's a, there's a, there's a relic there, and they actually believe that this may be the place where Christ himself was not only scourged, but where they would play this game on the floor, because there were certain markings on the on the, uh, the the floor there, and it was amazing to stand there and think, "Wow, this could have been the place." They hated the Jews, the Romans did, especially the soldiers. And they would do anything to get to get somebody like this and be able to mock them. They wanted to aggravate his agony the best they could. And so it says in verse 28, they stripped him. See, when Jesus was scourged, most likely he was naked. And after scourging was complete, the soldiers would put the inner robe back on him, which was not a fun robe to wear anyway. It was kind of a rough, almost like a burlap material. Can you imagine having that? Just rub against the raw wounds. And as the soldiers began their game, 
they heartlessly ripped that robe, which maybe even some of the blood was clotted to it at this point. They ripped it off him once again, exposing his wounds. And it says they put a scarlet robe on him. The soldiers must have found some discarded scarlet robe, a robe that maybe one of the soldiers would have worn as an outer garment, and they put it on Jesus. Matthew says it was scarlet in color. John says it was purple. <laughs> there must be a reason for that. We don't know. Purple, we know, represents the majesty. Scarlet, we think of Isaiah one eighteen. Though our sins be as scarlet, and he who became sin for us was clothed in this scarlet robe. And it says, they also, they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. They intended this crown to be a kind of a cheap, painful imitation of a wreath worn by Tiberius Caesar. You call yourself a king? We're going to treat you like a king. So they took this crown of thorns and they jammed it down on his head, no doubt digging into his scalp and continued bleeding. That word for crown there is Stephanos. It says the soldiers said that they, they put it around his head, just crushing it down. You stop and think of Genesis 3.18. It says, After the sin of Adam and Eve, God cursed the earth and said, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth. So it's almost a symbol, you might say, of Christ bearing the curse of the world because of sin. Jesus not only took away the sin on the cross, but he removed the curse of the whole earth as well. Romans 8.19 says that whole creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God because one day it too will be liberated from the curse because of the work of Christ. So they throw this robe on him. They throw this crown of thorns on his head. And it says they put a reed in his hand. It's made out of a common stalk they find over there. And the reed would basically symbolize the king's scepter. You know, you have a crown, you have a scepter, and you're the king. You sit on the throne. That's the idea. And the soldiers put it in his hand to mock Christ's authority. You're a king here. We'll even give you a a scepter, pal. On the Roman coins, there was always an image of Tiberius Caesar holding a scepter. And then they begin to mock him. They kneel down before him, it says, in a mocking manner. And it says, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they're bowing before Christ, who's already bludgeoned and beaten. And it says that as they get up from their, as they bow down, they spit on him on the way up, right in his face. And then they take the reed, the the sign of authority, the symbol of authority, and it says they struck him in the head. They begin to beat him up with his own scepter. The epitome of a, of a, 
foolish king. They were mocking him. They made a joke out of him. What kind of king could he possibly be if they could rip his scepter out of his hand and beat him on the head with it? Christ's sovereignty was a joke to him, to them. They thought if they could spit on him and if they could hit him in the head with his own scepter and have nothing happen in retaliation, then clearly he wasn't a king. I mean, this mockery continues and continues and continues, and it's a display of unbelievable wickedness in the human heart. I mean, remember, these soldiers have nothing against Jesus. They really don't. They're just unveiling the depravity in their own heart for their own amusement. What's amazing to me is through this whole ordeal, Jesus endures it, (laughs) says nothing, offers no resistance, See, he was willing to suffer for sinners. He was willing to suffer for the likes of myself and you. Not only the death on the cross, beloved. That probably would have been simple. But everything else that came with it. All the mockery. Hebrews 12, 3 says that he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. He endured it because he knew it was going to happen. He told his disciples that earlier in Matthew 20, verses 18 to 19. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. See, Jesus isn't a victim here. He's right on schedule, beloved. Yet he remains silent despite this humiliation and this agony that he's going through. Brings us to the crucifixion itself. Matthew skips over, really, what happens immediately after this mocking It just says there, after they hit him in the head, it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. That's it. In John chapter 19, verses 4 to 16, if you want to read that, you can read what happens, (laughs) all the stuff that happens in between there. Well, what was the plan here with the crucifixion? Verse 31, we see it. It says they mocked him and they they took the robe off him. They put his own raiment back on him and led him away to be crucified. Barclay says this, that crucifixion originally originated in Persia. And the origin came from the fact that the earth was considered to be sacred to one of their gods. And so when someone was convicted... They didn't want that person stoned on the ground. They had to lift them off the ground because they thought the ground was holy. And so they found, figured out a way to lift up someone and crucify them on a stick. 
on a cross. The crucifixion was passed on to Carthage in North Africa, and it was from Carthage that Rome learned about it. And they used it extensively. At the time of Christ, during the era of the, the Roman occupation of Israel, historians tell us that Romans crucified at least 30,000 Jews. At least. And they would do it out on the highways. They would take these people out on the main highways and byways where people were going to shops and all that stuff, and they'd plant a cross right beside the road, and that's where they would crucify somebody because they wanted everybody to know, if you come against the Roman government, here's what's going to happen to you. Crucifixion was a vivid illustration of the consequences of someone coming against the Caesar of the Roman government. Verse 32 says that as they went out, went out where? Went out of the city. All right? They couldn't crucify Christ in the city limits. Jews would never have something like that happen. That would just start another insurrection. So they were going to lead a victim to crucifixion. And they followed the same procedure they always did. And Romans skips over some of these things that happened before they left the city. You can read about that in John. But basically, they would have a big parade. And they would take the criminal, and they would give him his cross, and they would carry the cross, and he's beaten up or whatever, and he'd take him out, and then they would crucify him, and everybody was there to watch. But remember, this is what? This is Friday. This is, this is the, the, the Passover feast. Jerusalem is filled with people, just maxed out with people. So they have to have a pretty strong detail of soldiers to make sure that Christ makes it from Pilate's, Pilate's headquarters here outside the city to the crucifixion site. John 19 or Hebrews 13:12 says that Jesus suffered outside the gate outside the gate of the city. Most likely the north gate there. John 19, 16 and 17 says, Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth. See, the procedure was that the person would carry their own cross. And you see in certain movies and things that Jesus is just carrying the cross beam part. Or maybe he's carrying the other part. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says, for the most part, he must have carried the whole cross. Probably in excess of 200 pounds. And you think of the the torment and everything that he went through up to this point, and yet he's carrying this cross. And it says, as they went outside the city, he apparently couldn't do it anymore. He just couldn't. He's losing blood. And remember, their goal was to get him to crucifixion, but not, you know, they didn't want him to die before the crucifixion. <laughs> they, were, they were experts at this. They knew exactly, they could tell by the, the bleeding and by his breathing and everything, okay, this guy's about ready to die, he can't carry this anymore, we've got to get somebody else to do it. Because he's got to be alive when we crucify him. That's part of the whole process. So he carried this cross. Probably a good ways. 
And another interesting point is, if you want to know what Jesus' last sermon was, look at Luke 23, 27 to 29. Luke 23, 27 to 29. Because those are the last words that Christ says as a public sermon on his way to be crucified. It reads as follows. Luke 23, verse 27. It says, And there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Look at what he says. Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Verse 29, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. That's an unheard of thing in Judaism. I mean, if you couldn't have children, it was almost like a curse. And yet Jesus is saying, if you don't have children, it's a blessing. Why? He says in verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What's he telling? He's telling these people who are crying for Jesus, following him, he turns to them and he says, hey, don't cry for me. You need to cry for yourselves and for your own children. Why? Because God is not going to just let this go. There's going to come a judgment upon your people, which happened, by the way, in 70 AD. When Jerusalem was overrun, everybody was wiped out. It happened just like Christ said. He says, if they do these things when the wood is green, what's he, what are you talking about? He's saying, if the Romans and the Jews are willing to kill me, I'm an innocent person. I don't belong in the fire. I'm not, that doesn't make sense. You wouldn't throw a green piece of wood if you're trying to start a fire and burn up. You wouldn't do that. You'd throw an old piece of dry wood in there. And that's what Jesus is saying there. He says, if they do this thing to a piece of wood that's green, in other words, I don't deserve any of this. Think of all the times that you came against Rome. Think of all the insurrections you guys led. You don't think that it's going to reach a fur for a pitch one day and, and, and they're going to unleash their fury on you? Well, it's coming. God's going to allow it to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And he continues. And the procession came out of the city. Obviously, it was apparent that Jesus' strength just wore out. Even though he was probably one of the strongest men that ever lived, his body was perfect. He was sinless. Think about it. But the scourgings and the beatings had taxed his strength at this point. And beloved, there were no angels to strengthen him at this point. It was a done deal. And outside the city, they found this man. It says, the man of Cyrene, God's provision. (laughs) Isn't it interesting how God has a way of providing, even though we're in the depths of trial or the despair, whatever it might be, God comes along at the proper time and, and, and provides. And he provided Simon. He was a Cyrene. He was a Greek. 
It's a Greek settlement located west of Alexandria, directly south of Greece, on the North African coast there. Today you'd think of it as Libya. A lot of Jews lived there because it was a trade center. And Simon, no doubt, was there in, in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We don't know, historians don't know, if there was a Jewish synagogue for the Cyrenians there in Jerusalem or not. It would seem so. Acts 6 9 says so. But they believe he was, he was Jewish because Simon is obviously a Jewish name. Over in Mark, interesting verse, Mark 15, 21, it says, They compel one Simon of Cyrene who passed by coming out of the country. So Jesus came out of the city. He's heading one way outside the gates. Simon's headed the other way. Maybe he went out and he got some stuff for Passover and he's heading back in to celebrate Passover. We don't know. But he was there at the right time for the Roman soldiers. And he, they basically just said, hey, you, come here. You're going to carry this guy's cross. And there was no, you know, you have to understand, in the culture, you couldn't say no. They'd just kill you, and they'd get the next person. So there was no pity on this individual. It didn't matter where you were going or what he was doing or who was with him. Had no, made no difference. The Roman soldiers just knew they were not carrying a cross, definitely not a, a, a Jew who was going to be executed. His cross, they're not going to do that for him. Mark 15.21 says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus are both Greek names. So Simon, a Jewish man, gave his son Greek names, which was not an unusual practice. Why did Mark identify Alexander and Rufus? This is kind of interesting, and I'll just go through this with you. Mark probably wrote his gospel from Rome. And he wrote it. And his first readers may have well belonged to the Roman church there. It was likely that they knew Alexander and Rufus. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 16, 13, wrote this. Greek Rufus, and then he says this, chosen in the Lord. And his mother and mine. Whoa, that's interesting. Who would be... Who would the mother of Rufus be? The wife of Simon, obviously. It's not difficult to imagine that Simon, passing by here, carrying the cross of Christ, ordered to by the Roman soldiers, came to Christ. He raised two sons and became pillars of the church at Rome. And evidently, his wife became like a mother to the Apostle Paul. Funny how God turns things around, isn't it? He pulls all these details, these facts together. I think one day when we get to heaven, we're going to meet Simon of Cyrene, along with his wife and his children. But it says there that they compelled this man to carry his cross. And then verse 33, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, some people think, oh, this is, this is where all these bones are laying around. No, that, it's not that at all. Or it, it would have said the place of skulls, plural. 
Plus, Jews just wouldn't have bones just laying around. That's just not in their culture. They wouldn't tolerate that. But it's the place of the skull, a place called Golgotha. Golgotha is really an Aramaic term, and it's transliterated into Greek and then into English. It means skull place. Luke uses the, the Greek word cranion, which we get cranium from. The Latin Vulgate translates that Calvary, which is the Latin word for cranium. And that place is, is, is over there today. You can go over there to the garden tomb. I have a couple pictures of it here. I don't know if Jenna can put them up there. But you can see this, this hillside. It looks like a skull. You can see the eye sockets. You can see the nose. Now, Jesus wasn't crucified on top of this. Okay, he was crucified down at the bottom. This was, this was overlooking it. And the road went down near the bottom. And so because of those, that look, and this is just a stone's throw from the garden tomb where they believe Jesus was buried. And so it's kind of interesting when you go over there and you see that, you're like, wow, that does look like a skull. <laughs> well, verse 34 goes on and it says, talks about the preparation that they had for someone who was going to be crucified. And it says there that they would offer him this sedative almost. You know, not everybody's just going to lay down and let you drive spikes through their feet in your hands. So even though the Romans didn't want to alleviate the pain and the anguish, they had to at some point kind of offer some sort of, of sedative to these people so they weren't kicking and screaming the whole time. It made their job a lot easier at the end anyway. And so the preparation was to give these people vinegar, mingled with gall. And it's kind of a, a wine. Gall is a general term referring to something bitter. Mark 15, 23 says that myrrh was mixed with the wine. So they would do this and, and it would just help their process of crucifying these people. And it says there, they, mixed, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, and he was thirsty, so obviously he would taste it. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He wouldn't do it. He refused it. You say, well, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, in John 18, 11, it tells us why. He said, he said the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? See, he was not willing, he was not going to allow for any of his senses to be dulled because he needed to make sure that, that he felt the full effects and full pain of the cross. Hard to understand. But that's exactly what happened. And then in verse 35, it says, when they had crucified him, this is what was kind of interesting, that's all you hear. And when they crucified him, and you look at the original language, and it's not even so much talking about the crucifixion, crucifixion as much as, as it is the people who crucified him. <laughs> and that's all it mentions. It says, after that, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. See, Matthew is focused totally not on 
so much Christ's pain and his anguish and, and, and his, the, the process of his crucifixion. He's, he's focused on the wickedness that's in the hearts of the men who are carrying this out, allowing this to happen. So he doesn't get into all the, the crucifixion stuff. He just says, oh, they crucified him, and then when they divided his garments, they were taking the spoils. Having crucified him, they parted his garments. They would basically have five pieces of clothing back then. So they probably divided up the four among the four soldiers who were there. There's one left, so they had to cast lots for it. One translation adds there to verse 35. It says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, that, might, that it might be fulfilled by which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. It's a quote from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. That is a prophecy. It's from 19, John 19.24. Depending on what translation you have, it's, it's not in my Bible, the ESV. I think if you have the King James, it's probably in there. It shouldn't be. It's in the Gospel of John. And it's most likely one of the scribes put it as a note. And over the years, it just kind of included, got included in there. Because the oldest texts of Matthew that we have don't even have that in there. Not a big issue, but just to let you know, if you're reading different translations, that's why that's there or it's not there. So we see here that they divided his prophets among him, among the, the soldiers, cast lots for him. And then it says that in verse 36, then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. These are the, the soldiers. These are the guys that were supposed to protect him as he's dying on the cross. Because sometimes people would come up and, and they would maybe uh, get carried away and, and start beating on the person or whatever that's being crucified. That wasn't allowed. They were to be, just die by crucifixion. That was it. So they were there to keep order. To make sure nobody came up and helped him. Or nobody came up and did anything else to him. They were his protectors. It was their job. Sit there and watch somebody die after they mocked him and crucified him. Then, verse 37, it says there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The pronouncement. If you compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the complete statement is this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders didn't like that at all. They didn't want that up there. But Pilate said, too bad. That's what I wrote, remember? I writ what I've written. And so no doubt people would look at that and say, yeah, look at that guy. He thinks he's a king. King of the Jews. Look at him now. Hanging up there being crucified. 
People probably walked by there and mocked him, made fun of him. Talks about the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Matthew doesn't give us any other details. We know that one of them apparently came to know the Lord, but Matthew doesn't mention that. Verse 39, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So they mock him. They point at the sign and laugh. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel, all right. Let him come down from the cross. Oh, then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You know what? The world is full of people, beloved. Full of people. Just like these soldiers, just like the crowd who laugh at Christ. They see him as a joke. The world is full of ignorant people who callous their hearts toward a loving Savior. Part of it is they they don't know who it is that they are rejecting. Unless the Spirit awakens their heart and their soul to him. They'll spend all of eternity in the same place as these soldiers in a place called hell, a place of utter torment. Do you know what? It's never too late. In Matthew 27, if you look all the way down to verse 54, and we'll close with this, it says, When the centurion, he's the commander of a hundred soldiers, And they that were with him watching Jesus says when they saw the earthquake that happened, and we'll get into this next week, and those things that were done, it says they feared greatly. And here's what they said, truly this was the Son of God. Luke 23, 47 says when the centurion saw that was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. See, out of that group of soldiers, beloved, at least one, one that's mentioned here, came to true faith in Christ. Even as Jesus was dying on the cross, put there by these ignorant, wicked men, he made salvation that he was procuring for all men available, even to his crucifiers. (laughs) I mean, you see where Jesus is truly a friend for sinners. I would ask this morning, is he your friend? Have you put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I ask that we would pause and just look into our own hearts. We know what we're going to find there. The Bible already tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. See, it's what's on the inside, not on the outside. It's what's most important to God. We see that over and over throughout Scripture with David and others. What's on the inside? 
What is God able to see when he looks inside your heart? Are there things in your life that he can see right now that you wish he couldn't? Well, now's the time to take the time to confess those things to God. Tell him you're sorry. Tell him that you realize that you are a sinner, that you need his forgiveness, that you realize that Christ was the one, the perfect spotless Lamb of God who went to the cross and he died for your sins. Pour out all that evil that you have been holding on to in your heart. Ask him to reveal to you any evil that you might store in your heart in the future. Turn from yourself and your pride. Acknowledge him as Christ the Savior. Repent. Turn to him and he will save you. He's willing to relieve you of the burden and guilt of sin. He's paid the price for it. He loves you. Won't you put your faith, your trust in him this morning? Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would quicken it to our hearts as we leave this place here this morning. Father, help us to remember as we go out into a lost and dying world that the message of the gospel is the only message that saves. The message of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. So, Father, as Christians, as we go out and we encounter those who are lost, I pray that it would be quick on our lips to point them to the cross, to point them to Christ, the one that can forgive and reconcile their wicked hearts to a holy God. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.